This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to ICU Rounds. I've had several emails to approach the topic of the interpretation of arterial blood gases. And this is something that I can certainly admit that when I was in medical school and, and even as a junior resident approaching interpretation of blood gases was somewhat daunting. And, and now as I've, I keep giving this, the development of this topic more and more thought... In, in my opinion, it's now almost like riding a bike. How do you tell somebody to ride a bike when I'm at the bedside of somebody and I'm looking at their blood gases? But one of the things that seems to make make sense when teaching this, this topic is that we have to probably first really delve into uh, some of the issues of hypoxia, which we've done in an earlier podcast, and then also talk about uh, the role of pulse oximetry. A lot of the, the classic lectures or classic textbook chapters in arterial blood gases really predate pulse oximetry, which to, to many of you may seem really kind of unbelievable that oximetry or continuous pulse oximetry is a reasonably new uh, instrument in, in, in the care of the critically injured or a critically ill patient. Now, when we look at the blood gas, there are several variables that we're looking at. There's the pH, the PCO2, the PO2, and the saturation, uh, or, and as well as the total hemoglobin. And we've talked in other podcasts, we have to think of a little bit about how the body is designed to carry oxygen around the body, that we have um, oxygen that is dissolved in the plasma, and that represents the partial pressure of oxygen. When you think about how a fish is able to breathe in water, it's able, a fish is able to breathe in water because there is oxygen dissolved in that water uh, to a certain degree. And if you have a chemistry background, you can actually go through and calculate that. As a critical care fellow, I actually had to calculate the, the partial pressure of oxygen in a cup of coffee. Um, and I actually have seen that on, on certain exams. And that's that's certainly capable of being done. Uh, we would not say that that is an efficient way of transporting oxygen around the body. And we know that we have a molecule called hemoglobin. And hemoglobin is used to carry oxygen around. It carries a significantly more uh, amount of oxygen than does the amount of oxygen dissolved in the plasma. And we can actually calculate that. For those of you who have ICU backgrounds, uh, there is a calculation called the content of arterial oxygen, and, and you'll see that abbreviated as CaO2. And there are two elements of that. As we said, there's the amount of oxygen that's bound to hemoglobin, and there's the amount of oxygen that is dissolved in the plasma. And the amount of oxygen that's bound to the hemoglobin, that part of the equation is the hemoglobin concentration times 1.34 times the saturation of arterial oxygen. And that gives you a reasonably large number. When you calculate it out, you'll get something like 14, 15 um, um, milligrams per deciliter. Now, you add that to the partial pressure of oxygen times 0.0031. Now, if the, partial pr- if the, if the saturation is 60 times 0.0031, you get a really small number. I'm sorry, the PO2 times 0.0031, you get a really small number. If the partial pressure is oxygen is, is 100, you get a bigger number, but it's still a really, really small number compared to the first set using the oximetry number. Or if the number is, say, 600, times 0.0031, you still get a really small number. So from physiological standpoint, the the part of the uh, oxygen dissolved in the blood, transported through the the body, the portion that's really relevant physiologically is that bound to hemoglobin. Um, And so when we look at a blood gas, we're really looking at a, a PO2. 
and the information it provides us is important and relevant. Now, we also have the other instrument that we use in addition to the blood gas, and that's the pulse oximeter, which almost everybody in, in every ICU and virtually every bed in a hospital or anybody undergoing a procedure or being transported by helicopter and ambulance is on oximetry. And to some degree, we put a very uh, significant false sense of security on that pulse oximeter, and we think it tells us more information than perhaps that it should. Uh, and to understand the strengths and the weaknesses of the pulse oximeter, we need that's what we're going to focus on in this podcast, and then we're going to marry that information to what we learn on the blood gas. Those two informations, they're not either or. They're really kind of synergistic. They help, the, they help them each other, and we need to take information from the blood gas and apply it to what we learn from the pulse oximeter. We've mentioned that the content of arterial oxygen is the basically the content of oxygen bound to hemoglobin and the content of oxygen that is dissolved in the plasma. Well, we can actually get a number called the delivery of oxygen, or the DO2. And the DO2 is basically that content of arterial oxygen times the cardiac output times 10. And so if you are a tissue bed and you are being deprived of oxygen in the blood, one way that the body will compensate for that is increasing the cardiac output. Now, it is generally agreed that, uh, as far as physiology goes, that if the delivery of oxygen is three to four times greater than the consumption of oxygen, then the tissue oxygen needs are reasonably satisfied uh, in non-septic patients. So we're delivering more oxygen than we're consuming, about a ratio of four to one. And as you get into some of the numbers with PA catheters... A PA catheter will actually help us calculate some of those numbers. One of the, the many things that really kind of get me going in the intensive care unit is that when people, when we talk about PA catheters, I'm, I'm kind of hard on them. And one of the reasons why I'm very hard on them is that most people, and I would, the vast majority of people who put in PA catheters, only look at a handful of the numbers. They'll look at something like the wedge pressure, which is more appropriately called the pulmonary artery occlusive pressure, which is a measurement of, of cardiac preload. They may look at the cardiac output. They may look at the SVO2. But when you get into some of these oxygen kinetic numbers, people typically are not familiar with them or not comfortable with them. And the example that I always make is that if you have pilots screaming down a runway at 200 miles an hour uh, with a plane full of, of individuals, you would hope that he knows what all those little numbers and switches and gauges mean inside the cockpit. Uh, I think that if you're caring for critically ill patients and you would like to put a PA catheter in, you are certainly morally, if not intellectually, obligated to know what are all those variables mean and, and how do they how do we interpret them. And uh, this is what some of the numbers we can get is the VO2 or the consumption of oxygen and delivery of oxygen. Again, delivery should outpace the consumption by at least 4 to 1 in a non-septic individual. So if we imagine that we are a cell in a peripheral tissue bed and we are needing oxygen, there are those variables that will determine how many times or how much oxygen gets delivered to me, that little that uh, cell in that peripheral tissue bed. The example that gets used all too often in, in undergraduate uh, and medical school is, you know, you have truckloads or trainloads of, of oxygen. Well, it's it's a it's a good example. It works. Is how how many how full are those boxcars on that train? How many boxcars? are delivered and what is the rate of the train coming is the other variable that I think often gets missed in that. So if you have a deficiency of arterial oxygen content then the body can offset that by increasing the cardiac output to basically make sure the trains come at a more rapid rate. 
Now, if we've studied what's called the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, we understand that it has a very sigmoid, what's called a sigmoid-type curve, that there's a couple of shoulders to it. And really significant arterial hypoxemia is defined when the PaO2 is less than 60 millimeters of mercury. Now, this is, again, looking at a blood gas uh, or the uh, uh, saturation of uh, on the pulse ox is less than 90%. That curve, that shoulder of that curve is something that people will certainly need to know. It's significantly relevant in a clinical situation. It may be even relevant on an examination-type setting that when you have a, uh, a pulse oximeter reading of 90%, that that roughly correlates to a PaO2 of roughly 60 60%. Now, when the PaO2 is greater than 60 millimeters of mercury, then your saturation is roughly greater than 90%. That would certainly seem to make sense. Now, the blood oxygen content is close to the maximum for that hemoglobin content, and therefore oxygen delivery will depend more on cardiac output once you get above a saturation of, say, uh, 90%, as well as capillary perfusion. Uh, so you can certainly have uh, decreased oxygen delivery with a normal saturation. Uh, that could be due to blood pressure. Or that could be due to cardiac output. Uh, and therefore, by increasing the uh, uh, pulse oximetry, the, the um, uh, PO2, or increasing the uh, uh, SpO2, will really have further, very little in, uh, significant increase clinically in the amount of oxygen that's delivered to that peripheral tissue. I've already told you I'm pretty heavy on uh, PA catheters, but a PA catheter really does give us ability to uh, really get enhanced measurement of um, tissue oxygenation because we can actually quantify both the cardiac output as well as what we call the oxygen extraction. And the oxygen extraction is we can actually calculate and measure the amount of um, um, oxygen and the content of arterial oxygen and the content of mixed venous uh, blood as well. And that gives us what's called a CAVO2. And that gives us, basically we can do a calculation of a what's called an extraction ratio and determine how much uh, the blood that's going out oxygenated on the arterial side is being returned um, on the venous side, how much oxygen has been extracted from it. And clearly, if the tissues are being deprived of oxygen, they're going to try to extract more of that oxygen out of that blood before it comes back to uh, the heart. Now, in most circumstances, we're able to quantitative, excuse me, qualitatively evaluate clinically relevant changes in cardiac output by assessing some very basic observations, things such as the blood pressure, the pulse rate, urine output, skin color, capillary fill, as well as the patient's sensorium. But the PA cap that actually gives us more of a quantitative assessment as to directly what is the cardiac output as well as what is the SVO2 because that's another great metric that determines uh, how well the forward flow is as well as how how much the peripheral tissue beds are really uh, sucking up the oxygen of the blood when it arrives there. Now let's dig into a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of, of this oximeter. The gold standard for measuring the portion of total hemoglobin that carries oxygen is something called co-oximeter or co-oximetry. Uh, you can get this on some blood gas analyzers. It used to be something you had to kind of specially uh, order when you ordered a blood gas analyzer to make sure it had the ability to actually directly measure blood oxygen using the co-oximetry technique. What co-oximetry is, it's a laboratory analyzer that utilizes 
four or more uh, spectrophotometric wavelengths to quantify the four clinically relevant hemoglobin moieties. Now that's reduced hemoglobin, oxyhemoglobin, carboxyhemoglobin, and methemoglobin. And this is, and you think about taking care of patients in burn intensive care units, uh, this gets really uh, very relevant because we are dealing with uh, all four of these hemoglobin moieties, particularly in the treatment of cyanide toxicity. We've certainly prior to when we were using the new cyano kits. And each of these four uh, hemoglobin moieties, reduced oxy, carboxy, and methemoglobin, has its own light spectrum. Now, modern pulse oximeter works, and these are the kind of oximeters you have in your ambulance, in your ICUs, uh, we've all seen them, has the light-emitting diodes, you know, that ET kind of finger. And in addition to having the light-emitting diode, it also has the ability to sense what's called uh, plethmos graphic principles and is able to detect uh, arterial um, uh, blood versus non-arterial blood. And this is important because what you want to measure is you want to measure the amount of oxygen in arterial blood. And if it wasn't able to detect that, then it would say, well, this is the saturation of venous blood or capillary blood. Um, and there's certain uh, um, certain devices that can use that, but we want to measure the amount of oxygen in the arterial blood. And that's why the ability to measure the plethmosography is so important. Now, the ratio of transmitted light intensities of the two LEDs determines basically what's called spectral wavelengths, measures the reduced hemoglobin and oxyhemoglobin respectively. Now, this process is applied, again, to arterial or pulsatile blood, which is identified by the uh, plethmos graphic technology to text the fluctuating absorption of light uh, through uh, the sensor. Now, how sensitive is a pulse oximeter? You've heard us talk about this in, in other podcasts when we've looked at pulse oximeters versus uh, uh, the um, um, commenters and glucometers are typically 15, plus or minus 15%. Uh, but we've said that we like to keep our pulse oximeter readings at greater than 92%. And the reason for that is, is we've said that at a a um, saturation of 90% is where we hit the shoulder of our oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, and that corresponds to a partial pressure of oxygen of 60. And at that shoulder of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, the PO2 drops dramatically uh, in relationship to any change in the saturation. Um, and if you're not familiar with this, you really have to look at the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Now, it's difficult to assess the accuracy of the, clo- uh, of the pulse oximeter below 90% saturation, but it's generally agreed that accuracy decreases of the, as the saturation decreases. So your pulse oximeter is going to be more accurate, say, at 95 than it will be at 65. Now, even assuming a plus or minus 2 to 3% correlation on the steep portion of the dissociation curve, um, this represents really unacceptable performance for a quantitative analysis, particularly in, in this kind of a dire circumstance. Uh, if a patient's got a PO2 of, say, um, 30, that's clearly clinically a very problematic circumstance. Now, clinicians must consider a pulse oximeter value below 90% as a significant clinical event. It must not rely on that value uh, as representing the coximetric value. Um, basically, that what that means is that um, that is, you know, if your pulse oximeter is reading 75%, um, if you draw a blood gas and set it for coximetry, you're probably going to likely get a different saturation value. 
Now, as with any device, there are certain limitations. The clinical reliability of pulse oximetry is affected by certain uh, extraneous factors that interfere with the uh, reflectance and absorption of light, as well as the plasmographic functions uh, of the pulse oximeter. And and anybody who's dealt with pulse oximeters uh, in any setting are aware of these. The light-emitting diodes used for the pulse oximetry detect both reduced and uh, oxygenated hemoglobin forms. Okay, now we've mentioned that there are four hemoglobin moieties, that there is the oxygenated hemoglobin, which is the good hemoglobin. That's the hemoglobin that has the oxygen on it. There is the reduced hemoglobin. That's the hemoglobin that doesn't have the oxygen on it. You might just want to call that bad hemoglobin, but it's not really bad. It's more of a neutral hemoglobin. Then you get into more of your bad hemoglobins. The bad hemoglobins are your met hemoglobin. Um, and your carboxyhemoglobin. And as somebody who does burn surgery and burn critical care, you know, carboxyhemoglobin will kill you. It will produce, uh, you know, it will suffocate you. We've done podcasts on the role of smoke inhalation, but carbon oxide is a colorless, odorless gas that binds hemoglobin much more strongly than oxygen. And by doing so, it deprives hemoglobin from binding with oxygen and can suffocate the patient. But when we look at a pulse oximeter, we said it doesn't measure these bad hemoglobins. It measures kind of that neutral, the uh, reduced hemoglobin, and it measures the oxyhemoglobin. So this could certainly be problematic. What if you pull a patient out of a burning building and they have significant carbon dioxide poisoning and you put them on a pulse oximeter? Well, that pulse oximeter will see that carboxyhemoglobin, that poisonous hemoglobin, as oxygenated hemoglobin because carbon monoxide, that carbon monoxide-bound hemoglobin, has roughly the same absorption as uh, oxyhemoglobin. Now, a little technical note for those of you who actually, you know, may be practicing ICU physicians or uh, critical care fellows, the way a pulse oximeter works, it actually has two wavelengths. It has a 660 nanometer wavelength and a 940 nanometer wavelength. And at 660 nanometers, uh, the carboxyhemoglobin looks the same as oxyhemoglobin. At roughly 900, at 940 nanometers, uh, the carboxyhemoglobin is transparent uh, to the uh, absorption wavelength. So this means that a patient who has carbon monoxide poisoning and, say, has a, a, a life-threatening CO poisoning, uh, say 40%, and is breathing 100% oxygen, will have a, a saturation of 60% and a if you actually drew a sample of blood uh, on a blood gas, sent it to a blood, gain, blood gas analyzer and measured the saturation using a co-oximetry technique. But if you took the same patient and put on a pulse oximeter, the pulse oximeter will say they have 100% saturation. Uh, obviously, in the patients that I care for, this is something that can be very, very misleading. You may take a patient, may show up in your emergency room, they may come out of a burning building, uh, and you put them in your ambulance, and they get a pulse oximeter reading that says 100%. Hey, all is fine. Well, all is not fine. Uh, there are some uh, monitors that are out there that have been designed by companies that make pulse oximeters. Uh, that are now able to measure carbon monoxide levels. These kind of devices were initially designed for something called firefighter rehab, is that a firefighter comes out of a burning building, they're fatigued, they're tired. Are they fatigued and tired because they've just gone an amazing amount of physical exertion, or have they been exposed to such carbon monoxide that they may have some carbon monoxide toxicity? So these monitors were initially designed to put on firefighters uh, at the fire ground to make sure that they are safe to go back and, and to fight a fire, that they weren't dealing with carbon monoxide poisoning. But you could see where those 
those kind of monitors would be physiologically relevant and clinically relevant in the ambulance taking care of a burn victim or a patient that comes in uh, to your local emergency room, either from a fire or a bad furnace, uh, particularly in the northern states where they're always very suspicious of carbon monoxide poisoning for good reason, and you put on a, uh, a pulse oximeter and you say, oh, they look fine. Well, you should know that that could be very, very misleading. So much misleading that if you get that patient and they've got 100% saturation, but they've got the history in which you suspect carbon monoxide, do not believe that pulse oximetry reading until you send a blood gas and have it measured, uh, the oximetry measured by co-oximetry. Oximetry can also uh, change its trends pretty uh, dramatically in acute hemorrhage because of anemia, um, but uh, does not really appear to be affected until the saturations, until the hematocrit drops to about 15% or lower. Dyes such as methylene blue, which can be used in the operating room, indocyanide green and indigo carmine also used in the operating room, can also interfere with oximetric devices. Um, interesting enough that if you take somebody who's got methemoglobinemia, and we said that that, uh, that can really interfere or not to be apparent on a oximeter, uh, and then you treat methemoglobinemia, typically with methylene blue, that you'll have a patient to be very, very sick, they'll have a high methemoglobin level on a blood gas, their pulse oximetry may look normal, and you give them methylene blue, and as they're getting better, their oximetry looks horrible. Uh, I've had the opportunity to treat such patients, and it's a rather scary situation. Now, elevated bilirubin levels do not appear to interfere with the accuracy of oximetry, uh, in the pediatric patients, another source of error is ambient light from the infrared heating lamps, and this could be interfered. You'll see this in the NICU where the nurses will build like little dog houses uh, for the uh, oximeter sensors uh, by taking like uh, envelopes from EKG leads and so forth, trying to make it like an opaque environment uh, such that the ambient uh, light is not interfering with the oximeter sensor. Now, the oximeter does de- depend on pulsatile blood flow, as we've mentioned, to be able to distinguish venous and capillary blood flow. So, therefore, a motion artifact on the digit uh, may um, uh, make it difficult to read. And same thing as low flow situations. If a patient's on a, if it's on a, a toe or an earlobe, the patient's in shock and they're hypotensive, and the uh, oximeter is not able to pick out that pulsatile flow, you're going to get a very for uh, a very low. Uh, plethogram and therefore it's not going to be able to uh, sense the arterial blood from the venous and the capillary blood. Well, pulse oximeters are used in about every clinical scenario that one could potentially imagine. Uh, again, the accuracy and liability of the oximeter is greatest when the oxygen saturation is above 90%. Therefore, it provides an excellent monitor in clinical circumstances such as general anesthesia, where hypoxemia is not to be expected to occur and um, must be immediately detected if it does occur because of the circumstances in which the patient is sedated and, and you're not able to communicate with the patient as well as the stress that the patient's under. The rapid, uh, the rapid acceptance of pulse oximetry in a standard practice of anesthesia is really probably the principal reason why the technology has been so universally applied. Now, it's interesting that when you look at the, um, if you want to have a good time with the um, Cochrane reviews, um, go and look at the Cochrane reviews on pulse oximetry. Um, the, the Cochrane reviews don't really demonstrate that pulse oximetry has not been proven 
to improve clinical outcomes. But when you look at the safety of anesthesia now with pulse oximetry uh, versus before, the number of uh, perioperative deaths that occurred prior to the, to the use of pulse oximetry compared to the perioperative deaths that occur now, it's clearly made a huge impact. But yet when you look at the studies, and certainly to the Cochrane database, as to whether pulse oximetry has a cause and effect relationship with um, uh, safety, the Cochrane database fails to uh, improve that. However, any reasonable individual would certainly uh, attest to the fact that the use of post-oximetry in the operating room has certainly made the entire process of uh, general anesthesia much safer, even in the absence of validation from the Cochrane database. The continuous monitoring of post-oximetry in the intensive care unit can help rapidly detect um, problems in the patient's oxygenation level and, and certainly initiate rapid assessment and intervention. However, you should be mindful that pulse oximetry is not a replacement for blood gas monitoring in a critically ill patient. Because of the acid base variables that we get on the blood gas, we don't get any ventilatory data provided by the oximeter. Uh, and though pulse oximetry may decrease the frequency of blood gas measurement required in some patients, it should not be considered uh, more than a trend monitor of saturation in the critically ill patient. So again, we, we come across this issue of trending. So um, the blood gas is something we do intermittently. We may do once or twice or three times a day. And, and it's much like an x-ray, that when you look at somebody's x-ray on morning rounds, it's like this is what their, their chest x-ray looked like an hour ago. And certainly in a critically ill patient, things move very rapidly. I'll often say that people in the intensive care unit live in dog years. And it's not meant something to be disrespectful. What it has meant is that if you tell me, well, yesterday the patient's uh, labs were this. Well, if you're in an intensive care unit, a lot of things can happen in 24 hours. And a blood gas drawn at 4 a.m. may not be absolutely clinically relevant at noon. And a trend monitor, such as a uh, pulse oximeter, can perhaps detect changes uh, in that patient's overall status that could alert the clinician that, gee, perhaps I need to get a repeat blood gas and see where we're at. It's not to imply that because I have continuous pulse oximetry that I have no further need to uh, sample arterial blood and send it for a blood gas. You'll also remember that when we talked about the five causes of hypoxia, one of the things we mentioned was that hypoventilation could lead to hypoxia. And again, uh, the alveolar PO2 will decrease towards 60 as hypoventilation progresses, uh, provided the patient's breathing room air. And that's, you know, a fraction of inspired oxygen of 21%. Now, any degree of supplemental oxygen will provide an increased alveolar um, oxygen level despite increasing alveolar levels of CO2. So therefore, pulse oximeter provides no reliable assessment of ventilation unless the patient is breathing room air. Now, this is clinically relevant that we're seeing uh, certainly in our unit and, and certainly in our hospital and hospitals around the country is that take a patient who may be in a cir circumstance where they could be hypoventilating and on supplemental oxygen. And that's something that is something to be considered is the use of sedation. Sedation to put a chest tube in, sedation to do a burn debridement or perhaps suture someone is that you typically put somebody on uh, who's getting uh, some IV versed or some fentanyl. Nil, uh, or even you know something like certainly something like propofol, uh, and you have them on uh, supplemental oxygen. You can suspect that even though they're hypoventilating, their pulse oximeter will remain normal. 
and they can have significant elevation of their PCO2 because they're hypoventilating. And to provide a continuous trend monitor for that, now we have what's called capnography, nasal capnography, uh, that we can take somebody who's non-intubated and measure their end tidal CO2. In a pre-hospital environment, we're seeing a lot more of uh, waveform capnography being used in circumstances where patients have been uh, intubated. And in intensive care units, patients who are intubated, capnography, uh, certainly the trending of capnography can make us aware of problems with ventilation. Uh, during those periods where we haven't obtained a blood gas, so we can see a change in trend and draw blood gas when we see a change in the exhaled uh, carbon dioxide level. So that is a brief introduction on some of the issues uh, dealing with uh, dealing with pulse oximetry, and uh, we will build on this and begin a discussion on arterial blood gases and perhaps even some with capnography. I know that's a issue that's really important in our intensive care unit right now as we're introducing it to uh, nasal capnography and basically trying to get everybody who's on a mechanical ventilator to have some sort of form of capnography so we can trend that information as well. If you find IC Rounds useful, by all means, go to the page on iTunes, IC Rounds, and leave some positive feedback. That does actually help us quite a bit. We also have a Facebook group page, IC Rounds, on Facebook, uh, and uh, some discussion and getting some feedback there on different topics. If you have any questions about the information that got presented uh, today, for instance, you can leave that on IC Rounds, and you'll find that if I can't answer that, many of our other very knowledgeable listeners... We'll be able to answer your questions or even provide you a different perspective or opinion than my own. Other podcasts out there that we do include Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional, uh, which is uh, a companion to my textbook of the same name. I'm also going to put out a podcast this week of a sample from the Pharmacology podcast, which is probably useful to a lot of people who listen to this podcast to give you a sampling of that. And if you like it, go on over there and download those podcasts as well. The other podcast that I do is uh, the PHTLS podcast, which is a companion to the Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support Program as um, supported by the National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians as well as the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. Thanks for downloading. Have a great evening. 